Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit SubChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op-eds, videos, and, of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, a man who's thus far gotten away with not reporting his long-standing and very lucrative affiliation with China's Thousand Talents program. Jeremy, you are a credit to us all. <laughs> Greet the people, won't you? You're really going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying my best. Uh, I'm going to be persona non grata on both sides of the Pacific. Anyhow. That's the plan. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of persona non grata, it's been a very grim time for foreign correspondents in China. I've actually lost count now of how many American reporters have actually been kicked out of China, ostensibly in retaliation for expulsions and headcount caps placed on Chinese journalists working for state-run media outlets in the U.S. Uh, by the Trump administration. And, of course, in recent weeks, we've seen two Australian reporters, Bill Bertels and Mike Smith, depart China after they were visited by intelligence agents as persons of interest uh, in a case against CGTN journalist. Anyway, today on Seneca, we're going to talk about how and why all this has come about, who's been affected by this, what the impact has been on coverage of China, and how things are for the remaining foreign correspondents we're delighted to have with us. From Beijing, NPR's Emily Fung. I had the pleasure of talking to her for a show uh, in our old studio in Durham last spring. She was back in town at her old alma mater, Duke, before she headed to Beijing to take up her post there. Uh, Emily was formerly at the Financial Times and has been doing phenomenal work for NPR since she joined. Emily, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Emily, uh, let's get right into it. Can we go through a rough chronology of how all of this came to pass? And perhaps we can start with the kerfuffle over that Wall Street Journal op-ed by Walter Russell Mead. I'd almost forgotten it, but yeah. That uh, perhaps was the, uh, the start of the current train of regrettable events. Right. So the Wall Street Journal, at the height of the coronavirus epidemic in China, publishes this editorial with the headline, The Sick Man of Asia. Now, of course, the Wall Street Journal opinion section is completely separate from its news reporting division, but China decided that this was all part of one big organization, and they decided to expel three Wall Street Journal reporters in February 
over the editorial. In response to that, the U.S. then said, well, we are going to cap the number of Chinese journalists working at five Chinese state media organizations in the U.S. to 100 people. China then lashed back and said it was going to expel most American reporters for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. And in May, the U.S. then put additional limits on a certain type of visa that some Chinese journalists have, limiting the days that visa is valid to 90 days only. And then uh, in July, I mean, there's some other stuff going on here, but then in July, four U.S. outlets were financially audited, including NPR. And a date to keep in mind is November 6th. November 6th is when the first extension for these 90-day new visas that Chinese journalists are getting will expire. So it depends on what the Trump administration decides to do in their lame duck period. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate. Um, well, I, I don't think I want to go through an entire list of all the people who have been uh, shown the door uh, in, during this unfortunate time. But uh, quite a number of journalists from from not only the Wall Street Journal, but as you said, the Times and and the Post have also uh, been expelled now. Uh, That includes a number of real veterans, people who have done uh, some of the best journalism on the ground uh, for a very long time. And I would just include, just off, off the top of my head, I mean, Josh Chin, who's an old friend of the show, uh, Chao Dung, who wrote on technology for a very long time for, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, Paul Moser, who covered technology for the Times, Amy Chin, uh, Ian Johnson, even Chris Buckley, who's who's Australian, uh, not, not even an American. Do we have a, a total number, a count, or a percentage of the foreign correspondents from English-speaking countries who were eventually expelled? By by my count and the Foreign Correspondents Club of China's count, we've had 17 reporters expelled this year in 2020. And are there any foreign reporters left at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, and the Washington Post? There are, but they're running with skeleton crews. So Keith Bradshaw is still holding down the fort at the New York Times in Beijing. Jonathan Cheng, who is a Canadian, is still the bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal and is still keeping operations running really smoothly there. And to their credit, they've had their expelled reporters still reporting on China, just outside of the country. Right. They're mostly in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, right? Taiwan and South Korea, the conditions of the expulsions were that you could also not work in Hong Kong and Macau because they are part of China. Of course. Uh, Legally speaking. Um, And are these journalists that are still remaining for these organizations, are uh, are their visas at risk uh, when the next renewal period comes up? It looks like it. So on top of these expulsions, something that we've seen over the last month has been anyone whose visa is coming up for renewal and works for a U.S. media outlet is now no longer getting their press credentials renewed. They're getting these strange letters that when you go to the visa office to turn that into your usual one-year residence permit, they're being told that they're getting two months only and they're not getting their press credentials renewed. So they can stay in China, but they uh, don't have the usual um, the official permission to report, though they've been told they can still still work in the absence of that. I say about two months because all of the letters that we've seen so far expire, coincidentally, on November 6th, the state that I mentioned earlier, which is when the Chinese journalists who are on these three-month visas have their visas in the U.S. go bunk. So they're very clearly tying it to the decision by the U.S. Both sides are racking up leverage. Emily, could you explain something for me? Um, the three organizations that seem to be the primary target 
facts of Beijing's move, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, and the Washington Post are absolutely private media companies. Whereas I know NPR isn't state-owned, but it certainly has the feeling of much closer to the feeling of uh, an equivalent target to uh, CGTN. It is a, a public broadcaster, but it's not NP- though. Okay, can you can you? It's a private nonprofit. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to forgive you for being insulted at that comment. <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, it's got the word public in its name. So because it was founded with the mission of public interest journalism. Can you explain exactly what NPR is and why uh, perhaps the Chinese government is actually right not to target us in revenge for CGTN expulsions? Well, I don't think it has entirely to do with exactly the nature of the organizations they're going after in these visa retaliations or these expulsions. It comes down to timing. Certainly, it does come down to a little bit of coverage. And it also comes down to their strategy of of making it look like they still have the same number of news bureaus operating in China while reducing the overall headcap down to as minimal a number as possible. So for NPR, I am the only correspondent currently accredited with my organization in mainland China. We have a Shanghai bureau, but because of the coronavirus, we have not been able to accredit any new incoming journalists, which is true of every foreign news organization right now with a few very minor exceptions. So that has diminished our numbers even even more because people have been scheduled to leave and, and have left after extending, but we haven't been able to replace them with new bureau chiefs and journalists. Uh, The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, particularly the the New York Times and the Journal, have historically had really large bureaus here in China, and they've been able to keep those up. And so although a a large number of their reporters were expelled, their bureaus still operate, and they have just enough reporters to, to, to work in those bureaus. And so on paper, China can say, listen, we still have X amount of American news outlets that have a presence in China, even though in reality... We're really working overtime and and doing our best to cover an entire country with very, very few people. Yeah, it's been sorely reduced. Uh, Not only have they done these expulsions, but there are other U.S. publications, including Time Magazine, that have been uh, had had some uh, restrictions imposed on them or some some um, new bureaucratic hoops that they need to jump through, including I I think it was uh, routine auditing of, of their accounts. Right. So to clarify, at one point, the U.S. designated four Chinese state media organizations as foreign missions, as in treating them like you would treat a diplomatic consulate or embassy. And that meant that these organizations had to report their headcount and report their finances. In retaliation, China said, we are going to do the same thing to the same number of American outlets. That included NPR. So I had to do a financial uh, I had to do a financial audit this July. I can tell you it was quite straightforward. I wasn't asked any follow-up questions. We hired external counsel to help put this together for me. I never even stepped foot into the foreign ministry to deliver these materials. It seemed very pro forma, but it was meant to send a signal that China was keeping an eye on things and it was going to retaliate when necessary. Hmm. How is it for the major wire services like AP, Reuters, and, and Bloomberg? How have they fared during this? So far, they haven't been as impacted Bloomberg is one of the organizations to come out and say that several of their reporters accredited in mainland China have gotten these weird visa letters that I mentioned earlier, these letters mm-hmm. that say you can continue working, but only up until November 6th, depending on what the U.S. decides to do. Those reporters are not American. They're simply re- working for an American outlet, and they've been swept up in this. 
Right. And Reuters, as a UK-based outlet, they haven't been impacted by this that you know? So far, not that I know of and none that I can speak publicly about. The Wires historically have been a bit shielded by this. They've had an easier time getting visas. And it's in part because they have larger numbers of people and they don't often give, they don't always give bylines. But I think also it has to do with the nature of their coverage, which is they're, they, they, they do fabulous enterprise investigative pieces. They also push out copy and they alert their clients around the world of every major policy announcement and Ministry of Foreign Affairs press release that comes out as well. So Chinese government agencies value them and see them as a, a, a way to get their message out as well. And so that might shield them a bit from the more targeted personal retaliations that we've seen with other media outlets. Hmm. So, Emily, I've got to think that all of these uh, cops and other spooky types who were assigned to cover so many journalists to harass them and spy on them now have a, a much smaller target group. Have, <laughs> do, do you think the surveillance and sort of harassment of foreign journalists has, has gone up since uh, some of your colleagues were expelled? It, it has, anecdotally. Uh, the Foreign Correspondents Club puts out this annual media freedoms report. And right. so we've been collecting incidents reports. And, and anecdotally speaking, there are many more now uh, compared to the number, the fewer number of foreign correspondents that we actually have in the country. But uh, we'll come out with a full result this coming January. Personally speaking, I've definitely felt that there's been much more attention from the security services here in China paid towards NPR simply because there are just fewer American correspondents to keep track of. I've had much more difficulty reporting on sensitive topics and and doing reporting trips without uh, getting noticed in in recent months. These are the things that I can speak publicly about. There there have been a number of other loosely cybersecurity-related issues and information-seeking issues about how we operate and about my activities and, and personal views on certain topics. But in, in general, I think what the takeaway has been is the visa accreditation process, the system that governs how foreign journalists are allowed to operate here in China and, and who keeps track of our movements, has never been simply regulated by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, though on paper, that's who we answer to. In reality, the Public Security Bureau, the Ministry of State Security has always had a say about how long we get to stay here and under what conditions. Right. And it seems to me that they now have the upper hand. They get to say whether or not we get visas for how long. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which historically has been more cosmopolitan, more liberal, more welcome towards foreign journalists, is losing out in, in this uh, process of what to do with journalists. And so the arm of the foreign ministry that deals, say, with the Chinese personnel that work for foreign outlets has been very quickly tightening up its operations as well and demanding that we submit more paperwork, more things for for review, to submit our Chinese staff to additional trainings about how they should comport themselves around foreign journalists. The era of, you know, Hu Jiang and the early Xi Jinping era where post-Olympics in 2008, we, we had more space to report, we could travel more freely that has come to an end very quickly. And the people or the ministries that were open to that kind of open reporting have probably gotten a slap on the wrist and said, you you can't do this anymore. You've really got to run a tighter ship. You mentioned your Chinese staff just now, Emily. What's been the impact for news assistants in China uh, where, you know, they always suffered a certain precarity and, and, you know, they're often really the unsung heroes of newsrooms. Uh, What's happened to them? I won't speak individually about NPR's case, but just speaking on a a macro level, 
A number of the American outlets who had reporters expelled also had their Chinese researchers harassed, taken to tea by Ministry of State security officials, and uh, essentially then told they had to quit their positions or face consequences in China. And uh, as I've mentioned before, the arm that oversees these Chinese personnel who work for us has been, in general, more strict about enforcing the letter of the law of what they're allowed to do, which is very little on paper, and making sure that they are given regular reminders that they are actually formally employed by the Chinese foreign ministry and not the foreign outlets who operate here. Are you subject to increased um, reporting requirements on a personal level? I mean, uh, is the foreign ministry demanding that you give them an account of your movements or your plans? Before the Olympics, uh, just for people who don't remember, you had to file with the Y-Ban. Officially, you did. Nobody actually did. But you were supposed to tell the Y-Ban if you were leaving the city where you were accredited, Beijing or Shanghai. Is that now the case? Right. And the fact that they got rid of that restriction post-Olympics was a huge win for media freedoms for foreign journalists here. But in reality, China doesn't need that anymore. So I have still been trying to figure out what happens, but I started having issues with international travel last year at the height of the Hong Kong protests and after I'd written a big piece about Xinjiang where I would just constantly get pulled aside. I mean, this happened over a dozen times whenever I left and entered China for searching my devices, questioning what I was doing in China, who I talked to, how I reported my stories, who my sources were. And then uh, this started happening domestically over the last few months as well, uh, where it just became obvious that whenever I traveled domestically, there was some kind of travel alert that would go on particularly if I were going to a sensitive area where there was a newsworthy topic happening. And so, as you can imagine, that's made it very difficult to go unnoticed when you're reporting on topics, even though in the past I had just simply blended in because I have a Chinese face and I speak okay Mandarin. So uh, we don't have to report our movements. In theory, we can travel wherever we want without notifying the Chinese authorities. But somehow, through one way or another, they do get notified. If if you are willing to go without a phone or any kind of device uh, completely naked in the middle of the night, maybe you could get away without (laughs) them knowing. But otherwise, they're going to... Not if you take a plane or train, because you have to use your passport to buy that. Emily, can you, can you talk about the impact all this has had on morale uh, and the fear that it presumably has, has engendered among reporters still in Beijing? I, and I wonder if that fear goes beyond the, the PSB or the MSS or what other you know arms of the, the government or party are there sticking on you, but maybe even fear over popular displeasure with reporters from Western outlets. Uh, I would, was wondering what the, the attitudes of ordinary Chinese people are towards uh, journalists like you now if that's changed noticeably. So to your first question, journalists are a tough bunch. It's never been an easy place to report from here in mainland China. But what's changed is there is a real fear now that the way things are escalating could mean a foreign correspondent working for a foreign news outlet might get detained in the way that Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrid, God bless them, have been uh, detained. And Uh, So, you know, all of us have been making contingency plans, making sure that we're in contact with editors about having a protocol in case there does seem to be a real and present danger of being fingered by intelligence agencies. Mm. Um, That, I think, has been a a more concrete fear that we haven't had to face in the past. That being said, it's a tight community of, of foreign journalists here, and we do what we can to share information and to assess risk together. With regards to your second question about how how Chinese people see foreign media. It's always been a tenuous relationship. Sometimes they latch on to certain outlets that they, for some reason, think are here to uh, 
smear China's reputation and to air its dirty laundry out on the global stage. But for the most part, I think that Chinese people still have the strong belief, and this is not contained to just foreign journalists, a strong belief that the media is there to help them because it's a part of the petitioner's process. If you could somehow just get your grievance to the right leaders, to the national level, then this injustice that they're experiencing at the local level might improve. And I've had numerous experiences, surprisingly, over the last few months during the coronavirus when this rumor, this conspiracy theory that's completely false that the U.S. intentionally started the coronavirus was rampant in China, uh, when all of these media restrictions are going on American journalists, of regular Chinese folk who were happy to see American journalists on the ground. One story that really stuck with me is I, I did this big story this spring about village demolitions in Shandong. The usual, people not wanting to sell their land, their houses, but having bulldozers move in anyways and tear their livelihoods away with no compensation. I got to this place and immediately people asked, are you a journalist? And I said, yes. And immediately people started shouting and saying, oh my gosh, the journalists have finally come. And within seconds, we were swarmed by 40 people. In half an hour, we had about 100 people trailing behind us as we walked through this entire village, which of course got the attention of the party committee. But there is still a strong belief that media can reflect the preferences and the grievances of, of the people. And if the right people in power see that, that they might be able to correct those those mistakes. So I have found it actually just as uh just as it was before to talk to ordinary folk. And and that's one of the real privileges of reporting from mainland China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had that experience as well. Just showing up, uh, I remember I was in, in northern Jiangsu province. I showed up at this industrial park to talk to somebody. And it happened that there was a big protest going on about people whose land had been expropriated. And as soon as they saw me get out of the car, uh, they all descended on me and said, are you a journalist? <laughs> That was it. I couldn't actually do my interview. I was just surrounded by all these people who wanted to, to air their, their grievances. And I all had packets of material already to hand to me. It was amazing. That was back in uh, another era, though. So it, it, yeah, it's it sure uh, was. interesting that but, it, you know, Emily says it's Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Emily, what do you think the effect has been on the actual coverage of China in, let's keep it to the English language media, with uh, such a smaller number of reporters on the ground? In practice, it means that we have to dedicate more of our time individually to just covering the news. And there's a lot of news coming out of China right now, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. So that means, le uh, that means less of our time can be devoted towards enterprise stories, original reporting, trip, uh, stories that require travel, which can take days and days and take us away from the news desk. And so we all lose out. That those are the stories that I find the most fun to report as a journalist. And those stories might be the kind that are valuable to investors, to politicians, the average person outside of China who wants to learn something new that they're not getting from Chinese press reports. You know, a lot of people will ask me, what do you think China's strategy is with all this? Like, do they not care that this looks really bad when you're expelling journalists? And do they not care about getting their soft power message out? Is it because they have their own state media organs that do the work for them now, like CGTN, they have bureaus in other countries. And I think that part of it is China is not monolithic. There, there are many competing ministries with different interests at heart. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs certainly still wants to get its message out to the world. But as I mentioned before, the security services don't really care at all. Um, and the other is that their strategy really is to keep just enough journalists in China where they can get the policy messages out, the, the official announcements, but not give us enough time to do the really fun, interesting reporting. 
which is tragic because, you know, I, I really think that China would benefit from having more people cover. I mean, if, if, if there were 10,000 journalists, as Jim Fowler has once suggested, uh, they couldn't all just write on, on the, the, the politics stories. They would have to. They would perforce write about all the more quotidian things that would, you know, exactly. add that much-needed context. Yeah, it's really ironic. Um, Emily, what do you know about what happened to the two Australian journalists who were unceremoniously, well, if not expelled, uh, encouraged to leave, perhaps we could say Bill Bertels and, and Mike Smith? I'll, I'll give you an account of, of how I learned about all of this. I was actually on a vacation when I learned about Cheng Lei, who mm-hmm. is a Chinese-born Australian. She's an anchor at CGTN, which is a Chinese state broadcaster, and she had been disappeared and detained at an unknown location for weeks before this news became public. Shortly after that news came out, I was texting around to make sure my Australian friends were okay because all of us immediately thought, well, this might affect some of our Australian friends here in Beijing. And uh, one of my friends texted Bill Bertels, then the ABC bureau chief, and... He said he was totally fine. He was, quote, <laughs> smashing a coffee at Wagus, which is a popular restaurant here. Unbeknownst to me, he was probably at that point already sheltering inside the Australian embassy. But fast forward a few days and this news became public that Bill and Mike Smith, based in Shanghai, and another Australian journalist had left on a flight from Shanghai and were now back in Australia because they had been told five days earlier that they could not leave. There was an exit ban placed on their passports, and they were wanted in connection to a national security investigation regarding Chen Lei, the CGTN anchor. All of us thought it really had to do something with Chen Lei, who has been a longtime journalist here in China. Many of us in the foreign correspondence community had worked alongside her, knew her, were friends with her. It wasn't so far out of the ordinary to imagine that Bill and Mike might have known her personally, and for some reason, the Chinese authorities wanted to get them on that. A few weeks, uh, a few days later, it then emerged that this seemed to be actually in retaliation for an Australian government raid on four Chinese academics and journalists based in Australia that happened in June. And it had little, if anything, to do with Cheng Lei whatsoever. And so my understanding of what happened to these two Australian journalists who, who left after this diplomatic standoff is... They were told through some kind of official channel that they should probably leave. When they tried to leave, the Ministry of State Security intelligence agencies in in China realized what they were going to do and decided, let's make a show of this. Let's send a message to Canberra that that we can do this to journalists and that we're willing to intimidate foreigners in this way. So they showed up to their goodbye drinks and told them that they had exit bans on their passports. They didn't take the passports and they didn't put these two Australians in detention. Next time, I hope things don't get worse, but there is the possibility that they escalate. And uh, unfortunately, I think China security agents have shown themselves again to have the upper hand about what to do about foreign journalists these days, and it's not the foreign ministry anymore. And so how were they actually able to leave then? The exit bans didn't turn out to be real? or After sheltering in the Australian embassy and the Australian consulate in Shanghai, the two journalists were able to negotiate conditions under which they would submit to questioning from Chinese security agents, but would not be at risk of indefinite detention. Both Australian journalists have recounted in public statements now on on their various news websites that they were asked really softball questions. They were asked Mm -hmm. basic biographical Mm -hmm. details, basic descriptions about what they do as a journalist in China, very little about Qing Lei herself, and then they were let go. It seemed very much like it was pro forma. 
Yeah, it's just a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the consensus among foreign correspondents who remain in China about what they'd, or even foreign correspondents who've been expelled, about what they'd like their governments to do, whether in Canberra or in in Washington? Uh, Are the limits that are being placed on reporters for Chinese state-owned media in in the U.S., for example, or in Australia, are those finding support among foreign correspondents in China? Or do they wish that uh, the U.S. and Australian governments would be more conciliatory and maybe try to lower the temperature a bit. This whole issue of reciprocity, which I think we've been dancing around, this is Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. official name for the U.S. strategy, at least, about trying to leverage their way into greater press access for their journalists here in in the U.S., an intention I appreciate but don't think has worked. The idea that you somehow use tit-for-tat measures to force China to the negotiating table by taking out their journalists so they can take out yours but then hopefully reinstate them. That has been a uh, issue upon which foreign correspondents cannot agree in China. Hmm. Most Americans, because we've just simply been the target so far, disagree with reciprocity. We, we don't appreciate being political pawns in this negotiation. Sure. Other journalists, notably some from smaller European countries, which have used reciprocal negotiating tactics, albeit in a less public way, to gain visas for their foreign correspondents in China, disagree. They, they feel like China has long held uh, foreign correspondents here at an unfair standard, have not given us access, have harassed us, and that China finally needs to have their feet held to the fire about press freedom issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we don't have a consensus. One thing that, that what happened in an ideal world is given what happened to this two Australian journalists seemed to be connected uh, to this national security raid in Australia, it would be ideal if journalists here in China could be notified first about whether there will be some kind of event that happens in their home countries that could precipitate retaliation against them here in China. Right. Of course, that's completely impossible, right? I mean, a, a national security investigations n- <laughs> not, not going to be a journalist. <laughs> tipped off to a journalist first, <laughs> exactly. and our embassy certainly wouldn't know about it because they're not the FBI or DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. But that's certainly something that I've been monitoring very closely because I think that is what might trigger China to finally pull the plug and, and detain one of us. And and what are your expectations around November 6th? Are you, are you pretty worried about this? The U.S. has made signs that they're willing to consider extending visas to these Chinese journalists. My biggest worry is it is so close to a, a major U.S. presidential election that it'll just get lost in the shuffle. Like someone might forget <laughs> to extend these people's visas and that could lead to really serious consequences for here, us here in China. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be in the middle of the big fight over you know the recount, which is inevitable. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw Jeffrey Tubin's piece in The New Yorker just now, uh, this week, about the likelihood of, of that happening. Wow. It's, it's a big, meaty piece uh, about the elections. Uh, Highly recommend it. Anyway. The reciprocity argument is also interesting to me from a, a, another perspective. I mean, I, I think, for example, I tend to uh, be a supporter of reciprocal r- relations with China in many uh, fields that Kaiser completely disagrees with me. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable about this one because the people who work for CGTN are not actually journalists. I mean, some of them may have wanted to be, be but that's not what they do for CGTN. Is there another way that the U.S.? could deal with state media that people are talking about, Emily, uh, other journalists, aside from uh, basically 
placing them on, in a one-to-one relationship with the, the American press corps in, in China, which I think is deeply unfair to the American and other foreign press uh, uh, representatives. Right. I, I think outright expelling them is not a great idea. It doesn't look great given we're supposed to be an open democratic society that welcomes journalists, even if these are state media organizations. And it doesn't solve the real issue of, of trying to win greater press freedoms for journalists like me here in here in China. I think what you're getting at is is two problems with this reciprocal strategy, which is one, the U.S. and China were never on an equal playing field when it came to media freedoms. China can afford to lose huge numbers of, of media workers stationed in the U.S. without that really making a dent in their news operations in the U.S. or Europe, whereas American outlets never had that many people here to begin with. Right now, by my count, there are no more than 30 American reporters working for any major uh, Western news outlet here in mainland China after all the expulsions that have happened today. What, sorry, sorry, Emily, was that 30 or 30, 13? Just over 30. 30. Wow. Covering China news for an English no. language audience. So if the U.S. wants to play this tit-for-tat game, it doesn't have that many chips to spend. And uh, they're not going to get what they want. They'll run out before China decides to swerve. Well, it was, it was more than a year, well, probably two years ago, that they decided to impose FARA restrictions or FARA requir- requirements on CGTN, on Xinhua, on other state news agencies uh, that were operating in the United States, the Foreign Agents Reporting Act. Uh, and while you know CGTN bristled at this, there wasn't any reciprocal action taken. Uh, China also didn't say that uh, it was expelling journalists over... Uh, the Walter Russell Mead piece did they? Did they? I can't remember. Was that the explicit reason they they, they or did they yes, say it that was it was because the Wall Street Journal as a group did not apologize for the ah, editorial, okay, okay. and in All response, right. China was forced to take these measures. So quoting this one was verbatim. Yeah. But you're you're right about the far far stuff. There could be more regulation and oversight, transparency, basically about how CGTN and other state media organizations operate globally, including in the U.S. And the U.S. could also streamline its accreditation process for journalists. So this whole kerfuffle right now about these 90-day visas given to certain Chinese journalists working in the U.S., not all Chinese journalists are on this visa. So all of these journalists could be expelled, and China would still have some of its state media workers on the ground in the U.S. because they're more senior, they're coming in on business visas, they have many, many different types of—I mean, the U.S. immigration system is just— incredibly complex. Right. But they could have a more streamlined version where you would, one, know how many people are working for state media outlets from China and the U.S. at a given moment when those visas expire and the type of work they do. It gives you a mechanism to constantly review their activities here or right. activities in the U.S. Emily, given this dire situation um, and the fact that, uh, you know, as you say, there are only about 30 American journalists left in China, how are the ones who are not in China anymore finding workarounds so that they can still do interviews with people in China? Or are you even finding yourself, because of the increased surveillance and difficulty in traveling, that you yourself, even though in China, have to find workarounds? Yeah, so I can't speak personally to how the New York Times or the Journal have been doing their excellent China reporting from outside of China, but they're somehow managing it. And in part, it's because China is just so connected to the internet. Everyone has a mobile phone. Everyone has WeChat, though I guess it's also part of the surveillance problem that we face as journalists. I can say that because of the coronavirus and also because of time constraints, I can't 
possibly go personally to every location that I am reporting on. I can't do all those reporting trips that I have turned increasingly to virtual methods of reporting. Some subjects lend themselves better to this kind of forensic online analysis. I think, you know, today we're speaking on September 22nd, and there's been this great report out about Tibetan labor programs. And all of that reporting was done through the internet because reporters can't travel freely to the TAR, to the Tibetan Autonomous Region. So as China becomes more closed off, as reporting becomes more difficult, by necessity, even those still in China, including myself, will have to turn to more creative technological means to gain information or to triage data points to figure out what the trend is. The downsides of that, of course, is making sure that your conclusions are accurate, but also you lose that immediacy with being able to look a person in the eye and to understand through body language or other context what truly is going on. Um, and In many cases, I've found that doing this kind of remote reporting can feel really extractive because you're often talking about sad, tragic topics. That's unfortunately what the news tends to be. And you're doing it over the phone or, or WeChat, and it, you're talking about this person's worst moments, and you, you can't express your sympathy or simply taking this information from them. But it's, it's what we are being forced to do is our numbers dwindle, as some of us are no longer here in China. Um, but the internet, for better or worse, has made that reporting possible. It's also made it more dangerous for the people we talk to. Hmm. Emily, to change subjects here, a few weeks ago, the Australian China scholar Jeremy Barmay uh, wrote a letter to The New Yorker uh, taking one of my favorite China-based reporters, Pete Hessler, to task for writing a long-form piece that Barmay described as a blanc mange. He said that it was basically... Uh, you know, that it was absent any edge. Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of that letter or of peace, peace except to say that I raised this this big question, one that, that comes up time and again about, you know, how we're allowed to write about, how we're supposed to write about China. I mean, you're somebody who's written plenty of very critical pieces. As you mentioned, uh, you did something recently on Xinjiang. You wrote while at the FT about Xinjiang and about other very, very controversial uh, things that, that Beijing certainly would rather you've not written about. Uh, you've done a lot at NPR as well. Um, but you also report about pure culture pieces. I mean, you write about the potentially racially problematic uh, staging of, of uh, an African-American play in Beijing where there was a bit of black face going on, but you wrote about that with real sensitivity and nuance. Uh, pieces that highlight individuals or phenomena that are quite apart from hard politics. Has the expulsion of so many journalists shifted your thinking or your priorities or saddled you with a, a different set of, of obligations or a different view on how, how to approach journalism in China? It has. My priorities are to hold those in power accountable. I think that is the central mission of journalism as an accountability mechanism. And given that domestic journalism here in China has really atrophied despite the talent and mm -hmm. the de determination of Chinese journalists here, that responsibility now falls on the remaining foreign correspondents who are here who can be expelled with very little personal consequence to do those sorts of stories. So I am very clear that when I have time, these are the hard-hitting stories that I want to focus on. That being said, I love to read about 
China stories that are written simply because they happen to people and they're interesting, not because they happen in China and China has human rights abuses and political issues. I want to read about that too, but it's wonderful to read stories that aren't just about what China's done horribly to its ethnic minorities or what technological breach has just happened. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be as much room to do that. I just don't have the time to do that as much anymore, though I, I still make an effort. And on the part of the audience, the readers, the listeners, the viewers, they seem to want more of the China stories that are hard-hitting, if not critical. And when someone like Peter Hessler does a wonderful personal essay meets a long-form reportage piece about the zeitgeist in China during the mm -hmm. coronavirus and, and how China went through this epidemic, um, that if you don't somehow work in a hard political edge, a thesis that's critical about how China could have done better, or to mention any of the litany of awful things that the Chinese government has done in China, that somehow this piece is not worth reading, that it's somehow um, apologist, that it aids the Chinese Communist Party in some way by, by hiding the negative aspects of China. That, I think, is really unfortunate. But it really comes down to the fact that we don't have enough foreign correspondents here in China. We don't have enough independent journalists, including Chinese journalists, operating in China. That's right. Pete, for a long time, has, has talked about this. Uh, I think that, and, and I have too, I mean, separately, but I, I found that he'd written about this as well, uh, about how, you know, if I pick up the New York Times on any given day, I'm going to read an awful lot that's going to, you know, lead me to believe that the United States is on fire. Uh, there's going to be, you know, many stories about the siege of Oregon. We're going to be reading about uh, yet another innocent black life being taken by American law enforcement. Uh, we're going to read about, you know, the the misdeeds of the ruling administration. All all this stuff that's going to make me, you know, my blood boil. But I live here, right? I, I have the lived experience of the United States. And I also have the rest of the newspaper uh, that's going to to give me that, that, that needed context so that I'm not going to expect to open my window here in Chapel Hill and smell tires burning in the street. And that is just not the case when there are only the five or six stories that I read on China, and they're all going to be pretty relentlessly negative. Uh, that's why I think it's so important to have more journalists covering it, to just provide more of that of that sort of ordinary life coverage uh, stuff that you've you've you know done so well uh, so yeah I, I totally share that view and I, I don't think that we need to necessarily change the mission of foreign correspondence I still think that holding authority uh, to account is is the primary I mean I'm, I'm glad that that we have that adversarial conception of journalism here in the United States I think it it served us in extremely good stead especially I mean if it wasn't already obvious just in the last four years it's been you know glaringly obvious. I just think that people need to uh, recognize that, that that's baked in and uh, maybe adjust for it. Yeah, I don't know, Kaiser. I, I have limited patience with the, the, this line of argument. You know, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and I could have written a lot of very nice essays about my idyllic childhood in a white suburb while the smell of the burning tires was two miles away at a sufficient distance for me not well, to uh, have my nose bothered. Apartheid is an extreme so, example. I mean, I, 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 
It's, it's it is an not an extreme example. example. I mean, show me another talking about a state, country you know, right now. Show me something comparable to that right now. Well, concentration camps in Xinjiang, for example. If you if your beat is only Xinjiang, then yes. Yeah, um, we will have to agree to disagree on this one. I mean, I, 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 I there, there's a point that you make that uh, without the daily stories, the non-political stories, uh, a point you frequently make is uh, stolen from Jiang uh, Fan. Is you know, it's like an X-ray. You see the bones, and it's all accurate, but you're missing the flesh. And th- there is a certain amount of truth mm-hmm. in that. Uh, but you can take it a little too far. Um, well, I don't believe that I do. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a conversation that could go on for a very, very long time. But um, Emily, uh, any last thoughts on, on what the outlook is for you right now uh, and what's going through your mind right now as, you, as, as November 6th comes up? I'm certainly nervous, but all of us are treating every week like a gift and just doing as much as we can week by week, doing the stories that we always wished we could do, but not waiting on them, doing them as soon as possible. I consider myself lucky. I just renewed my press credentials for a full year at the beginning of August. Oh, and fantastic. It's a great sign. I'm befuddled, but happy that that's happened. Um, and uh, I also have just, I have no baggage. I mean, I could stay if I can stay, but if I had to leave tomorrow, I, I could. I have no children. I have no assets. I have no spouse. I mean, to tie things up and, and go would not be the worst thing in the world compared to how people with families are, are dealing uh, with this precarity. So I will I will do what it takes to continue working from here. Well, I hope you uh, continue to pump out the outstanding coverage that you've been doing uh, Everyone should be uh, paying very, very close attention to your reporting. I think it's taken on in even greater prominence now. Uh, and, you know, if you if you want to take a look at some of Emily's earlier stories, uh, we did talk to her before she headed off. I think we talked to her in March of 2019 before she headed to Beijing. Uh, so check that out. We, we talked through quite a number of, of, her, of her stories from the FT. Uh, Emily, thanks so much. Uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Let's move on now to recommendations. Uh, but first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. It's chock full of great reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. So sign up and spread the word. Okay, recommendations. Jeremy, you're up first. What do you got? Just another one from SubChina this week. Uh, we have a column that's been running for a few months now called Chinese Lives, uh, which examines uh, people who are very famous in China, but perhaps not uh, not so much abroad. Uh, the latest one is about the uh, literary charlatan Guo Moruo, uh, and it's quite interesting. The author is uh, Alex Charlatan. Colville. I have to, you know, explain my last name when I tell people I'm Guo Guo Moruo, the Guo. So I have a soft spot for that literary charlatan. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I think Alex has been doing a fantastic job. I really, really like his column. Emily, what do you have for us? In the vein of your last question, I just did a podcast about reporting culture in China, which has really taken a nasty turn. But uh, it's done with a fun twist. It's about a Chinese heartthrob and how that temporarily wrecks his career. (laughs) 
Uh, and for those who like science fiction, I just finished an excellent two-parter called Children of Ruin and Children of Time, written by a writer called Adrian Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best sci-fi series that I've ever read. Oh, wow. Oh, great. Great recommendation. Adrian Tchaikovsky, like the composer Tchaikovsky. Yes. Ah, what if there's a relation? And no, no, no knowledge of whether he's related to Igor? No idea. I should look hmm. this up. Yeah, okay. Anyway, my recommendation is Andrew Basevich's recent piece in the American Prospect titled The China Conundrum, uh, Deterrence as Dominance, which is a critique uh, of of a piece by Michel Flournoy um, called How to Prevent the War in Asia, which was in Foreign Affairs. Uh, Michel Flournoy is, is particularly important because she is the likely appointee in a Biden administration as Secretary of Defense. Uh, she probably would have been had Hillary Clinton won in 2016. So um, this is, is an important piece. So read that, but then more importantly, read Basevich's uh, critique of it, which is... Um, you know, Basevich, of course, if you know where he's coming from, he he's uh, uh, the, I, I can't remember, I think he's president of the Quincy Institute. So he's certainly somebody who, who uh, believes in restraint as a principle in American foreign policy. So he definitely comes from that, that angle. And it's, it's a critique of the kind of um, maintain American hegemony and primacy uh, approach that, that Flournoy takes. Anyway, um, Emily, thank you once again. What a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, you know, keep keep get keep going. Um, keep at it. We're, Thanks. Uh, expecting great things. And stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. Watch your back. Knock on wood. Yeah, Jeremy is 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 always good to talk to you. Likewise. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.